We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 334 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, June 13th, 2022, and repeat after me, I will not panic about the Terry McLaurin contract situation. I will not panic about the Terry McLaurin contract situation. I will not panic about the Terry McLaurin contract situation. Just keep saying that to yourself over and over, and over, and over again. It is not time to panic about the commanders having not yet signed Terry McLaurin to a contract extension. The time to panic doesn't come until the start of commander's training camp. We're still a month and a half away from the start of commander's training camp. Uh, All of that said, (laughs) the news on the Terry McLaurin contract extension front continues to, shall we say, not be ideal. Hello and welcome to a Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Hope that you had a nice weekend. Hope that you didn't lose $100,000. Hope that you're not $100,000 poor as Jack Del Rio has become. Ah, yes! The Jack Del Rio situation, that thing. Uh, Friday afternoon, announcement from Ron Rivera, a $100,000 fine of Jack Del Rio for his now infamous dust-up comments at his post-OTA practice press conference last Wednesday morning. But it wasn't just the fine. It also was the statement in which the fine was announced. What Jack Del Rio said last Wednesday morning about what happened at the Capitol on January 6, 2021 was wrong, way wrong. But something that Ron said in his statement on Friday afternoon uh, may well have been totally unfair to Jack. Uh, Next segment, I will go in depth on the latest in the Jack Del Rio situation. Uh, There is a lot to get into off the fine and the Ron Rivera statement and what Tucker Carlson said about Ron Rivera, and what Ed Reed said about Jack Del Rio and Commander's players, and Jack now being off Twitter, and a lot more. The fun never stops with the Commanders, and 
That brings us to this Terry McLaurin report. So the Commander's mandatory minicamp is this week, Tuesday through Thursday. Commander's insider Nikki Zavala of the Washington Post on Sunday afternoon reported that while there has been some progress in contract extension talks between the team and Terry, uh, the two sides remain far apart. And that as of Sunday, Terry was planning on no-showing this week's mandatory minicamp. And as I tweeted on Sunday afternoon, uh, Terry no-showing the mandatory minicamp would be a big deal. Understand, the only two no-shows for a Redskins mandatory minicamp in recent years were Albert Hainsworth in 2010 and Trent Williams in 2019. That's it. Now, I'm not saying that Terry McLaurin's situation is as toxic as as those other two situations, because those other two situations were quite toxic. But Terry no-showing the commander's mandatory minicamp this week would be significant. I mean, again, Albert Hainsworth in 2010, Trent Williams in 2019. Those are the only two other times in recent Redskins slash Washington football team history that a player has no-showed a mandatory minicamp. No-showing the mandatory minicamp is considered to be a significant act of insubordination. Now, with Terry, again, it's a little different because we all know what kind of a guy Terry is, and his situation is not the same as the Albert Hainsworth situation in 2010, nor is Terry's situation the same as the Trent Williams situation in 2019. But I have to say, I am surprised that at least as things stood on Sunday, uh, Terry was not planning to attend the mandatory minicamp, but we'll see. Uh, Tuesday is not yet here. So perhaps things uh, will change. But in the meantime, just keep saying the mantra to yourself. I will not panic about the Terry McLaurin contract situation. I will not panic about the Terry McLaurin contract situation. Also on the show, uh, plenty of Nationals and Orioles talk. Each team had multiple big offensive games over the weekend. Hey, the Nats won a series over the weekend. Uh, Their third consecutive weekend series win uh, the Nats won two or three games against the Milwaukee Brewers at Nationals Park. Two monster offensive performances, though then a 4-1 loss on Sunday afternoon. But lots to get into with this series, including Nelson Cruz being on fire right now. Uh, the O's, they split a four-game series at the Kansas City Royals. The O's won the final two games, including a 10-7 win on Sunday afternoon, as Cedric Mullins, among others, had a big game. You know, Cedric Mullins, like Nelson Cruz, has gotten hot off having struggled mightily to begin the season. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of feedback on everything going on with Jack Del Rio. Email from Kurt. I'm with you on JDR. Dumb idea to try to explain a political view via a tweet. Just asks for trouble Dragging that into my distraction from the mess of this country doesn't help things, though I respect everyone's right to an opinion. Then I see that blatant (laughs) hypocrite Don Ron fine Jack $100,000 and then take the other side of the argument in his tweet doing the exact same thing on the team site where JDR was on his own account. What a joke. Fined for having the wrong opinion. They are making it impossible to root for this team. I only root for them still because I enjoy your podcast coverage so much of the teams I grew up loving. My tolerance is wearing thin, though. Thanks for all you do, as always. Well, thank you for that, Kurt. Yeah, not everyone is a fan of the $100,000 fine 
of Jack Del Rio by Ron Rivera. Uh, much more next segment. Uh, email from Kent. Sorry, but the $100,000 fine against Jack Del Rio is ridiculous. I think January 6th was disgraceful, but the fine against him was equally disgraceful. His penance should be condemnation, not monetary penalty. I'm sorry, but I have no optimism for the future. The woke mob seems to rule all. Anyways, I appreciate your fair and balanced, no pun intended, approach to this. I think his apology was enough, and that should have been the end of it. I understand some people's emotions are high, but geez, just let it go. Most people are independent Glad to vent. Uh, thank you for that. Kent, email from Kareem. Just tried to go on JDR's Twitter page, and it is either blocked or he has turned it off. Uh, that's probably a good thing. Uh, yes, Kareem, the Twitter account of Jack Del Rio is no more. Again, more on Jack Del Rio next segment. If only buying a home in the Washington, D.C. area was as easy as firing off a tweet about January 6, 2021. Well, if you work with Kellen Hunt, your experience of buying a home in the D.C. area will be as easy as sending a tweet, but will not be anywhere near as contentious as tweeting about January 6, 2021. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs, and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. The D.C. area real estate market is hot. Homes are going under contract quickly after they are listed, and that and low inventory mean that if you're wanting to buy a home in the D.C. area, you need a smart realtor who can put together an offer that wins. This is where Kellen Hunt comes in. He wins. Kellen Hunt understands the market, and he is here for you to listen to what you want and then get you what you want. Uh, No matter your age, family situation, or financial situation, Kellen Hunt can help you. Kellen Hunt is a real estate agent for real people. Kellen Hunt has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to local neighborhoods and economical development and schools and market conditions and all that makes the Washington, D.C. area unique. And here's maybe the best part. Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you the buyer, Get a piece of the action. Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing, and he wants to help. So visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs, and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. You have nothing to lose. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. Book an introductory call with Kellen Hunt at CloseItWithKell.com. If you're trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kel. Visit CloseItWithKel.com and tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. Well, Jack Del Rio still is the commander's defensive coordinator. Uh, I, on Friday, had my doubts about whether Jack would make it through that day or through the weekend as commander's defensive coordinator, but he still is the commander's defensive coordinator, uh, at least for now. Uh, So the commanders this week have their mandatory minicamp Tuesday through Thursday, June 14th through the 16th. Uh, This already was going to be a big week. This is the final week of practices for the commanders until training camp starts in late July. Uh, The mandatory minicamp is, yes, mandatory. Uh, We initially figured that receiver Terry McLaurin would be in attendance, but we on Sunday afternoon 
Got the following tweet from Commander's Insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post. Quote, talks between Commander's and Terry McLaurin's reps have continued per sources. While there's been some progress, they're still far apart. And as of now, things may change. McLaurin seems unlikely to show for minicamp. He returned to Florida today to resume training for the season. End quote. Uh, if he is not in attendance, that is going to be a massive story. Uh, Terry has been no-showing the Commander's offseason program since the 2022 NFL draft, of course, due to not yet having a contract extension as he enters the final season of his rookie contract, I do expect Terry to attend uh, this week's mandatory minicamp. Uh, also, interior defensive lineman Duran Payne is expected to be in attendance at the mandatory minicamp. He last week no-showed the commander's final OTA practice and perhaps no-showed other OTA practices as he does not have a contract extension as he enters the final season of his rookie contract. But make no mistake, Tuesday is going to be Jack Del Rio Day for the Commanders. Uh, all three of the Commanders' mandatory minicamp practices are expected to be open to the media. And so Commanders head coach Ron Rivera is expected to do a post-practice press conference on Tuesday, during which he undoubtedly will be asked a ton about the Jack Del Rio situation. And any Commanders players who speak to reporters on Tuesday almost certainly will be asked about the Jack Del Rio situation. Uh, two big things have happened in the Jack Del Rio situation since Friday's installment of the podcast. Number one, Rod Rivera on Friday afternoon announced a $100,000 fine of Jack. Number two, Jack over the weekend deleted his Twitter account. Uh, I find Jack having deleted his Twitter account to be funny. I don't know if Jack decided to do that on his own or was told to do that, but it has been quite a last few years for Jack on Twitter. As I have detailed, he at the very least seems to have a Twitter comprehension problem. He has treated false political stories as if they are true, like a tweet from the Babylon Bee, which is a satirical Twitter account. And Jack seemingly got confused by when the Wizards hired Wes Unsell Jr. as their head coach. Uh, Jack, on May 26th, responded to the Wizards tweet from last July 17th, announcing the hiring of Wes Jr. as head coach. Jack tweeted, quote, congrats, Wes, wishing you the best, end quote, as if the Wizards had just hired it. Wes Unsell Jr. as head coach. So it may well be that Jack Del Rio is just better off not being on Twitter, especially now that he is $100,000 poor. So let's talk about this fine, this $100,000 fine that was announced on Friday afternoon via a statement from Ron Rivera, or at the very least, a statement that was attributed to Ron Rivera. You know, you never know with a statement whether it is actually the words of the person to whom the statement is attributed, or whether the statement uh, was simply written by some, you know, media relations person or some lawyer and then approved by the person to whom the statement is attributed. Uh, anyway, just to reset the timeline so that everything is clear. So Jack Del Rio last Monday night, June 6, put out multiple political tweets. One of them was a response to a report on the then upcoming hearings on the riot at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Wrote Jack, quote, would love to understand the whole story about why the summer of riots, looting, burning, and the destruction of personal property is never discussed, but this is triple exclamation mark, hashtag common sense, end quote. Uh, Jack, last Wednesday morning, June 8th, did a post-OTA practice press conference at which he made the now infamous dust-up comments about January 6, 2021. 
Jack last Wednesday afternoon tweeted out an apology for the dust-up comments. The president of the NAACP, Derek Johnson, he this past Thursday, June 9th, put out a statement saying that it was, quote, time for Jack Del Rio to resign or be terminated, end quote. And then we on Friday afternoon got the following statement from Ron Rivera, quote, this morning I met with Coach Del Rio to express how disappointed I am in his comments on Wednesday. His comments do not reflect the organization's views and are extremely hurtful to our great community here in the DMV. As we saw last night in the hearings, what happened on the Capitol on January 6, 2021 was an act of domestic terrorism. A group of citizens attempted to overturn the results of a free and fair election, and as a result, lives were lost and the Capitol building was damaged. Coach Del Rio did apologize for his comments on Wednesday, and he understands the distinction between the events of that dark day and peaceful protests, which are a hallmark of our democracy. He does have the right to voice his opinion as a citizen of the United States, and it most certainly is his constitutional right to do so. However, words have consequences, and his words hurt a lot of people in our community. I want to make it clear that our organization will not tolerate any equivalency between those who demanded justice in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the actions of those on January 6th who sought to topple our government. After reflecting on the situation and circumstances, I've decided to find Coach Del Rio $100,000, which the team will donate to the United States Capitol Police Memorial Fund. I feel strongly that after our conversation this morning, he will have a greater understanding for the impact of his language and the values that our team stands for. End quote. And by the way, uh, the reason that Ron Rivera didn't say anything regarding the Jack Del Rio situation until two days after the dust-up comments was that Ron, according to 106.7 The Fan, was in France for his son's wedding. Uh, He supposedly flew out there on Wednesday afternoon, just hours after the now infamous Jack Del Rio post-OTA practice press conference. So Ron, while he was in France, you know, drinking wine, eating croissants, trying to enjoy his son's wedding, had to figure out what to do about this Jack Del Rio situation. Unbelievable. So there are three main points that I want to make about the Jack Del Rio situation off this $100,000 fine announced by Ron Rivera on Friday afternoon. I will get to the content of the statement, what was actually said in the statement in a few minutes. But point number one is this. This Jack Del Rio situation, whatever you think about it, is terrible for Ron Rivera and terrible for the commanders. Put aside how you feel about the spring and summer of 2020. Put aside how you feel about January 6, 2021. Put aside what Jack Del Rio has tweeted and said. Put all of that off to the side. This Jack Del Rio situation has put Ron Rivera in an impossible position. Here you have Ron having gone 14 and 19 over his first two regular seasons as Washington head coach. He has said time and again that this coming season needs to be a step forward season for the team. He has been trying to engineer a culture change for an organization that has been in dire need of a culture change. His defense last season was arguably the single most disappointing offense or defense in the NFL. And now, five months into the Commanders' 2022 offseason, Ron has to deal with his defensive coordinator, having said something that has a lot of people calling for the defensive coordinator to be fired. If you're Ron, you did not need this. And if you're Ron, you were darned if you did and darned if you didn't 
when it came to firing Jack Del Rio. A lot of people want Jack fired. A lot of people don't think that anything should have been done to Jack. No matter what Ron did, he was going to anger a lot of people. And what's funny is that Ron, in fining Jack the $100,000, essentially split the baby and may well have just angered everyone. Because if you want Jack fired, then you feel like the fine wasn't nearly enough of a punishment. And if you thought that nothing should have been done to Jack, then you feel like the fine is ridiculous. So I am sympathetic to Ron Rivera in this regard. You know, ever since Ron became Washington head coach in January 2020, he has had to deal with one screwed up situation after another. I mean, the list is like a mile long. The Trent Williams holdout, the Quentin Dunbar situation, the name change, the workplace misconduct scandal, the ownership turmoil, the Darius Geist situation, the DeShazer Everett situation, uh, cancer. Oh yeah, Ron had to battle cancer. Uh, and now this Jack Del Rio situation. It has been one problem, one mess after another for Ron Rivera since he became Washington head coach in January 2020. And here he was in France <laughs> trying to enjoy his son's wedding, and he had to deal with the Jack Del Rio situation. Merci! Okay? I mean, if you're Ron, what are you thinking as you're trying to enjoy your son's wedding in France and you got to deal with this Jack Del Rio situation? And then for the commanders as a whole, again, forget how you feel about the spring and summer of 2020. Forget how you feel about January 6, 2021. Forget how you feel about what Jack Del Rio has tweeted and said. This Jack Del Rio situation is bad for business. Very bad for business. Here you have the commanders, right? New name, a rebrand, trying to sell tickets to a stadium in FedEx Field that everyone despises, uh, trying to get people excited about the franchise again. And now you have this Jack Del Rio situation this divisive, incendiary Jack Del Rio situation. This is bad for business, man. Okay? People on both sides of the political aisle are ticked off about this situation. And how about what happened on Friday night? Did you see what happened on Friday night? Tucker Carlson on Friday night on his show on Fox News. Tucker Carlson tonight did a segment on the Jack Del Rio situation and called Ron Rivera a fascist moron. Yeah, a fascist moron. Take a listen. Just hours ago, the coach of the Washington Commanders, a fascist moron called Ron Rivera, announced that Jack Del Rio has no right to talk and he's being fined $100,000 for doing it. Yeah, Tucker Carlson called Ron Rivera a fascist moron. Okay, so that to me was a nasty, over-the-top, unfair thing to call Ron Rivera. But forget about whether you think that Ron is a fascist moron. Forget about whether you like Tucker Carlson or can't stand him or have never heard of him. Tucker Carlson tonight is the number one primetime show on cable news. Three plus million people watch Tucker Carlson tonight every weeknight. His ratings blow away the ratings of his competition. And so this past Friday, three plus million people watched the head coach of the commanders, Rod Rivera, be called a fascist moron. That's not good for business. That's not good for selling tickets. That's not good for the rebrand. I promise you that many commanders fans watch Tucker Carlson tonight. Them seeing Tucker call Ron a fascist moron 
isn't good for business. To say nothing of so many other Commanders fans being furious at Jack Del Rio not being good for business. This Jack Del Rio situation, whatever you think about it, is terrible for Ron Rivera and terrible for the Commanders. Point number two about the Jack Del Rio situation of this $100,000 fine for Jack that was announced via a statement from Ron Rivera on Friday afternoon. There is something in the statement that I think is potentially very unfair and potentially very wrong. Now, I use the word potentially because Ron has spoken with Jack. Uh, I have not. So it's possible that Ron knows things about Jack's opinions that we can't be certain of. It's possible that Ron has a clarity on Jack's thinking that the rest of us do not. Uh, Look, Jack Del Rio was totally wrong to call what happened at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, a dust-up. What happened at the Capitol on January 6, 2021 was not a dust-up, okay? That was a riot. That was a riot that was fueled by never-proven claims of election fraud in the 2020 presidential election, and the riot resulted in multiple deaths. Now, one death happened on the day of the riot, uh, the death of one of the protesters, Ashley Babbitt, and then multiple deaths of police officers happened in the ensuing days and weeks. Now, it's not exactly clear how many of those officers' deaths were direct results of what happened on January 6, 2021, but it seems pretty safe to say that the riot at the very least played a role in multiple deaths. And that's horrible. That's tragic. The riot should have never happened. And, you know, the fact that some of Donald Trump's most loyal people, uh, Mike Pence, Bill Barr, Ivanka Trump, all did not stand by the Donald in his claim of having truly won the 2020 presidential election tells you everything that you need to know about the validity of that claim. I mean, I don't know anyone who was more loyal to Donald Trump than Mike Pence. And even he would not go along with uh, the Donald's reindeer games about the 2020 presidential election. So Jack Del Rio was wrong to call what happened at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, a dust-up. And Jack did apologize for that. Uh, Whether you want to believe or accept his apology is up to you. But Jack did apologize for the dust-up comments hours after saying them. However, what Jack never did in his comments or tweets is say that the peaceful protests of the spring and summer of 2020 were as bad or worse than the riot at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. What Jack said was that the rioting and looting of the spring and summer of 2020 were as bad or worse than the riot at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. And yet Ron Rivera in this statement on Friday afternoon said the following, quote, what happened on the Capitol on January 6, 2021 was an act of domestic terrorism. A group of citizens attempted to overturn the results of a free and fair election, and as a result, lives were lost and the Capitol building was damaged. Coach Del Rio did apologize for his comments on Wednesday, and he understands the distinction between the events of that dark day and peaceful protests, which are a hallmark of our democracy End quote. So to me, the inference toward the end of that portion of the statement from Ron Rivera is that Jack Del Rio considered the peaceful protests in the spring and summer of 2020 to be as bad as, if not worse than, what happened on January 6, 2021. Yeah, so I don't think that Jack has ever said that. What I have taken from Jack's tweets and comments is that the rioting and the looting in the spring and summer of 2020 
were as bad as, if not worse than, what happened on January 6, 2021. Now, again, Ron has spoken with Jack. I have not. So maybe Ron has heard Jack say things that we have not. But the opinion that the rioting and looting in the spring and summer of 2020 were really bad is not some outlandish, controversial opinion. You know, I don't want to get into the thing of which was worse, the rioting and looting in the spring and summer of 2020 or what happened at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. I don't know. Okay, they're both really bad. Okay, they're both really bad. Each thing resulted in multiple deaths, too. Okay, Um, but if all that Jack Del Rio was trying to say was, hey, rioting and looting in the spring and summer of 2020 bad, uh, then that statement from Ron Rivera on Friday afternoon was unfair. Now, before I go any further, I want to make this clear. If Jack's belief with the spring and summer of 2020 was the rioting and looting and not the protests overall, then he last Wednesday morning at his post-OTA practice press conference did a poor job of communicating that. You know, Jack last Wednesday morning should have never said the dust-up thing. And if he believes that the problem with the spring and summer of 2020 was the rioting and looting and not the protests overall, then he should have done a much better job of presenting that distinction. He should have been much more sensitive to what a lot of people were feeling in the summer of 2020. And he should have explicitly said that the peaceful protests were good and that the rioting and looting were bad, okay? He should have said it. Spring and summer of 2020, peaceful protests good, rioting and looting bad. You see, to me, it's actually quite simple with the spring and summer of 2020. The peaceful protests, which were the overwhelming majority of the protests, were totally acceptable and good and needed, but the rioting and looting were awful. And there was no justification for them. And actually, I don't even think that actual protesters perpetrated the rioting and looting. What happened to George Floyd should have never happened. But really, the peaceful protests were about a lot more than just what happened to George Floyd. There was nothing wrong with the peaceful protests in the spring and summer of 2020. And the peaceful protests, from what I've read and heard, made up like, I don't know, 90 or 95 or 98% of the protests. I mean, don't quote me on a number, but the overwhelming majority of the protests were peaceful. However, we in the spring and summer of 2020 had too many protests that were not peaceful. And there's no disputing this. The reporting on this has been clear. The rioting and looting in the spring and summer of 2020 resulted in between a billion dollars and $2 billion in insurance claims. And I said billion, not million. Uh, This has been reported by multiple credible outlets. I read to you from a report from Axios in September 2020. Quote, the vandalism and looting following the death of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police will cost the insurance industry more than any other violent demonstrations in recent history Axios has learned. The protests that took place in 140 U.S. cities this spring were mostly peaceful, but the arson, vandalism, and looting that did occur will result in at least $1 billion to $2 billion of paid insurance claims, eclipsing the record set in Los Angeles in 1992 after the acquittal of the police officers who brutalized Rodney King. End quote. Let me repeat that. Between a billion dollars and two billion dollars. That's not nothing. The people who make it sound like every protest in the spring and summer of 2020 was violent are wrong. But the people who still refuse to acknowledge that there was a good bit of rioting and looting in the spring and summer of 2020 also 
are wrong. One more time, between a billion dollars and two billion dollars. And the irony is that so many of the businesses that were ravaged by the rioting and looting in the spring and summer of 2020 were minority-owned businesses. This is part of why I believe that you had opportunists, you had bad actors, as opposed to actual legitimate protesters perpetrating the rioting and the looting in the spring and summer of 2020. You know, we last Thursday night had the hearing for January 6, 2021, I think that there's an argument to be made that we should have a hearing on who actually perpetrated the rioting and looting in the spring and summer of 2020 to where the damage ended up being between a billion dollars and two billion dollars. Like, who did this? Where did these people come from? Why weren't more of these people prosecuted? I mean, a good number of people got arrested, but look up how many of them weren't prosecuted and or had charges dropped. But anyway, back to Jack Del Rio. If he was against the peaceful protests in the spring and summer of 2020, then he's dead wrong, okay? He is dead wrong. But if he, as I suspect, is only against the rioting and the looting in the spring and summer of 2020, then I don't think that he's wrong. I think that he's right. And if Jack communicated this distinction to Ron Rivera, and yet Ron, in this statement that came out on Friday afternoon, said of Jack, quote, he understands the distinction between the events of that dark day and peaceful protests, which are a hallmark of our democracy, and quote, well, Uh, Yeah, no one said that there was a similarity between the peaceful protests and what happened on January 6th, or at least I didn't get the sense that that is what Jack Del Rio was trying to say. And if that is not what Jack Del Rio was trying to say, then what Ron said in that statement on Friday afternoon was a mischaracterization of what Jack said. And again, I do concede that what Jack said last Wednesday morning, he did not say in the best way. A big part of where Jack went wrong last Wednesday morning was in not being more sensitive, you know, not displaying more of, shall we say, a bedside manner in talking about the spring and summer of 2020. I mean, let's just be honest about this. Jack Del Rio is a 59-year-old rich white guy. It would not have killed him to display more empathy for people who have been victimized by racism. Point number three about the Jack Del Rio situation of this $100,000 fine for Jack that was announced by a statement from Ron Rivera on Friday afternoon. Ultimately, what matters the most is what the commander's defensive players think. You know, if they are outraged over Jack's comments and now hate Jack's guts and want nothing to do with Jack, then Ron Rivera probably needs to fire Jack for the good of the team, you know, for the good of the 2022 season. But if commander's defensive players are good with Jack, then I think that everyone else should be good with Jack too. Or at the very least, everyone else should be accepting of Jack staying on board as commander's defensive coordinator. Did you see what Pro Football Hall of Famer Ed Reed said on Twitter on Saturday morning? Quote, today I'm sick and tired. A dust up, 100,000 is not enough. Money ain't nothing to a person who is recycled through coaching. It's always one. First it was Saban. Now it's Jack to just remind us what it is. Man, if you coach by him, put your pants on. It's simple, right, and wrong. Wrong. End quote. So what stood out to me was Ed Reed saying of Jack Del Rio, quote, if you coached by him, put your pants on. It's simple, right, and wrong. Wrong. End quote. Uh, Ed Reed pretty clearly was calling for commander's defensive players to speak out against Jack Del Rio. Well, Ed, uh, what if commander's players aren't mad at Jack Del Rio? What if commander's players agree with Jack or at the very least get 
where Jack is coming from. If Jack's contention is that the peaceful protests in the spring and summer of 2020 were good, but that the rioting and looting in the spring and summer of 2020 were bad, uh, why is it so implausible that Commander's defensive players might agree with that? Did you see what ESPN Commander's insider John Kime reported on Saturday? Quote, Del Rio is expected to address the team on Tuesday, though multiple sources close to the players have said they don't think it will be an issue with his players. One person close to defensive end Chase Young said of Del Rio, that's his guy, end quote. This assumption from people that all of these commanders defensive players must be so upset with Jack Del Rio, how do you know? I mean, the players may be really upset with Jack, okay, that is certainly possible, but how are you so certain that that's the case? And why do you just assume that that's the case? Because the commander's defensive players are overwhelmingly black, and all black people think exactly the same way? Do you know who's black? The commander's best defensive player, interior defensive lineman Jonathan Allen. Here's what he said this past Wednesday about the Jack Del Rio situation to Commander's insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington. Tell me if this sounds like a Commander's defensive player who is furious at Jack, who could never possibly play for Jack again. We'll start with the question from J.P. Defense coordinator has been pretty active on his Twitter lately. Some political stuff that kind of runs counter to a lot of what players have said. Does any of that make news in the locker room? Uh, not really, to be honest with you. Me personally, I stay away from it. I've heard about it, but I don't get on specifically so I don't have to really answer questions because I really don't know. But in, in, my, in my opinion, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Some guys ch- decide to share it on Twitter. Some guys don't. doesn't make one person better than the other. And at the end of the day, you can have a difference in opinion and still respect one another. I mean, I feel like that's what our country is about. That's what our team's about. So, I mean, me personally, I don't care about his opinion. His opinion, as long as he shows up every day and he works hard, I mean, that's what I want for my defensive coordinator. There you go. Jonathan Allen, who, in case you didn't know, is black. Uh, That was his take last Wednesday on the Jack Del Rio situation. And maybe Jonathan Allen is in the minority. And maybe most commanders, defensive players are irate toward Jack Del Rio right now. But I wouldn't just assume that. The Jack Del Rio situation, unfortunately, isn't going away, at least for another few days. Assuming that Ron Rivera on Tuesday is doing a press conference, then Ron on Tuesday is going to be slammed with questions about Jack Del Rio. Whichever commander's players on Tuesday speak to reporters will be slammed with questions about Jack Del Rio. I wonder if Jack himself might actually do a press conference on Tuesday just to try to put the situation to bed. Although, (laughs) if you're Ron Rivera, maybe the last thing that you want right now is Jack, is old JDR speaking publicly again. But if there's one good thing about all of this, it is that the $100,000 fine of Jack Del Rio is being donated to the United States Capitol Police Memorial Fund. As far as I know, that is a very worthy cause. So if nothing else, a worthy cause is getting $100,000. And uh, that, I would think, we all can agree, is a good thing. Up next, I'm talking Nationals. Uh, They had a good weekend with a bad ending, and the Nats' biggest star of the weekend is a guy who is surging right now, Nelson Cruz, as the great Keith Jackson used to say, Oh, Nelly! (laughs) I'm talking Nats straight ahead.
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, the Nationals didn't complete the sweep on Sunday afternoon, but the Nats over the weekend did notch a third consecutive weekend series win. Uh, The Nats have become like weekend warriors over the last few weeks. Uh, May 26th through May 29th, the Nats won three or four games against the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park. June 2nd through June 5th, the Nats won three or four games against the Cincinnati Reds at Nationals Park. And now this past weekend, the Nats won two or three games against the Milwaukee Brewers at Nationals Park. Uh, Friday night, an 11-5 win. Saturday, an 8-6 win that gave the Brewers an eight-game losing streak. But Sunday afternoon, a 4-1 loss. Uh, the Nats this season still have not swept a series. The Nats this season now are 23-39. and uh, That is the second-worst record in the National League. Uh, the Nats' offense in this series was outstanding over games one and two, and then did, like, <laughs> next to nothing in game three. The Nats' offense has been so feast or famine this season. We have talked about that. This series captured that in so many ways. The Nats over games one and two of this series totaled 19 runs and hit a combined seven home runs, including three consecutive home runs in a four-run fifth on Saturday. And the three consecutive homers in that game were by the Nats' three boppers, uh, Juan Soto, Nelson Cruz, and Josh Bell. Tremendous sequence at Nationals Park. But the Nats in their 4-1 loss on Sunday afternoon, a mere one run, uh, just eight hits, a double, and seven singles. Uh, did work four walks, but the Nats went 0 for 6 with runners in scoring position. But still, this ended up being an excellent series for Nelson Cruz. Uh, Cruz really has caught fire since his terrible start to the season, and he is raising his stock quite nicely as we're almost a month and a half away now from the MLB trade deadline on August 2nd at 6 p.m. Eastern. The Nats in March signed Cruz as a free agent to a one-year contract with a mutual option for 2023. This is his age 41 season. Uh, The Nats, of course, are a rebuilding team. The whole point of a rebuilding team having a Nelson Cruz is for younger players to learn some things from him, you know, watch him mash for a few months, and then trade him in order to add more inventory to the farm system. Well, Nelson Cruz has gotten going here. He threw May 3rd, had an OPS of just 442 this season. He now has an OPS of 756 this season. So Nelson Cruz, in a little more than a month, has raised his OPS for the season by 314 points. I mean, think about that. 
Uh, he was an at-starting DH and number four batter in all three games in the series, despite having been a late scratch due to back tightness for the Nats' 7-4 loss at the Miami Marlins this past Thursday night. And Nelson Cruz in this series was productive in every game. Uh, Cruz on Friday night, four for five with a solo homer, two RBI singles, and another single. Cruz on Saturday, two for four with a solo homer and a two-run double. Uh, and that two-run double was big. Cruz in the Nats, four-run third, a one-out bases loaded it. Two-run double to left field for a 3-1 Nats lead. And then Cruz in that Nats, four-run fifth, a one-out solo homer to center field for a 7-1 Nats lead. The homer went a projected 416 feet per stat cast. And then Cruz on Sunday afternoon, one for three with a single, a walk, and a stolen base, believe it or not. Uh, love what we've been seeing from Nelson Cruz lately. Juan Soto had a good weekend. Uh, he was an at starting right fielder and number three batter in all three games. Soto on Friday night, one for four with an RBI single, a walk, and an RBI force out. But uh, that RBI single was really good. Two run fourth for the Nats. Soto, a two out opposite field RBI single to left field on an 0 2 pitch for a 5-3 Nats lead. You know, it has been said for a long time with Juan Soto, when he starts going the opposite way, that's when he starts to heat up. Perhaps we're seeing that here. Soto on Saturday, one for two with a two-run homer, a bases-loaded walk, and another walk. Uh, the home run coming in that Nats four-run fifth inning, a one-out two-run homer to center field for a 6-1 Nats lead. The homer went a projected 406 feet per stat cast. And then Soto on Sunday afternoon, one for three with a bunt single and a walk. And yes, I did say bunt single. Uh, Juan Soto in the bottom of the first, a one-out first pitch bunt single to the third base side of the infield. Now, if it's possible to both love and despise something at the same time, uh, this is it. Uh, the bunt by Soto was beautiful, okay? Perfectly executed, uh, resulted in a single, but it still was a bunt. And anytime a great hitter like Juan Soto takes his power out of the equation via bunting, the opposing team wins, whether the great hitter gets a hit or not. So overall, I was not a fan of this, and neither was the Nats manager, Davey Martinez. Uh, take a listen to this from Davey's postgame press conference on Sunday afternoon. I did not have Soto bump, by the way. <laughs> Soto. Uh, yeah. You got it down there, but... What was your reaction? Uh, um, I, I walked down the steps. Did There's no analytics for that, right? <laughs> Did you guys have a conversation after? Did he say? No, I mean he's just playing. He's playing, just playing the game. You know, he, he you know, he saw an opportunity. Thought if you get the ball down, it's early in the game. Um, and uh, it was a good bunt. You know, which hey, like I said, you know, these guys are. <laughs> The, the thought process, you know, it's starting to think about things a little bit. You, you know, you figured, you know, you got two guys behind him, he's on base, starts some off early, and, uh, you know, not, I really, I was, I was semi-okay with it. <laughs> yeah, so certainly doesn't sound like David Martinez was a huge fan of Juan Soto bunting on Sunday afternoon. Uh, you know, it's not like Davey was, like, fuming after the game. But, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense for a great hitter like Soto to take his power out of the equation by bunting. Although, like I said, the bunt was a good-looking bunt, okay? I mean, Soto did bunt for a single. But I don't blame Davey for feeling uh, the way that he feels. Uh, I feel the same way. Uh, also for Soto on Sunday afternoon, he and an Nats one-run fifth drew a one-out five-pitch walk. So Juan Soto this season, really bizarre slash line for him. His batting average is just 230. His on-base percentage, though, is 376. His slugging percentage is 459. Uh, you want to see that slugging percentage get back into the 500s. 
Um, you do want to see the batting average be better than 230, although batting average to me doesn't matter nearly as much as on base percentage and slugging percentage. The big thing for Soto, honestly, has been his struggles with runners in scoring position, and he has been a bit better in that department lately. He overall this season, though, has really struggled with runners in scoring position. If he is just like normal, you know, like league average with runners in scoring position, a lot of his numbers uh, would be a lot better. But, you know, Soto, you feel like is a really hot week away from being right where you want him to be in terms of the season statistics. And then the third member of the Nats power triumvirate, Josh Bell, uh, he did well over the weekend. Uh, You know, he's another trade candidate, by the way. This is a contract season for Bell. He was a Nats starting first baseman and number five batter in all three games. Bell on Friday night, two for five with a three-run homer and a triple. Uh, Bell in a Nats one-run fifth had a leadoff opposite field stand-up triple to right field as the uh, Brewers right fielder Hunter Renfro failed in an attempt at a diving catch. The ball went toward the right field corner. And then Bell in the Nats 4-run-6, a one-out three-run homer to right field for a 9-3 Nats lead despite having been down to the count at 1.12. The homer went a projected 408 feet per stat cast. Uh, Bell on Saturday homered again. Uh, he went 1-for-2 with a solo homer, a walk, and an RBI sack fly. Bell on Sunday afternoon 0-for-2 with an RBI sack fly and a walk. Two other Nats who had good weekends, Cape Ruiz and Luis Garcia. Uh, good to see two young Nats, two potential building blocks for the Nats in the rebuild, doing well. Uh, Ruiz was a Nats starting catcher in games one and three. He on Friday night as a Nats number six batter went three for five with a solo homer and two singles. Uh, the solo homer came in a four-run Nats six. Uh, Ruiz in that inning, a one-out first pitch solo homer to center field for a 10-3 Nats lead. The homer went a projected 402 feet per stat cast. Also for Ruiz in this game, he in the top of the third picked off Rowdy Telez at first base for the third out. Uh, Cape Ruiz is becoming quite adept at the back pick, and uh, he nailed Rowdy Telez at first base for the third out in the top of the third on Friday night. And then Ruiz on Sunday afternoon as the Nats number seven batter, one for three with a double and a walk. Uh, he in the bottom of the second had a one out double to the left center field gap for the Nats lone extra base hit in the game. And Ruiz in the bottom of the eighth drew a two out five pitch walk. Luis Garcia, uh, he was the Nats starting shortstop at number eight batter in all three games in the series. And he in the series went seven for 13 with seven singles. I mean, he got on base a ton in this series. Now, he did get caught on an attempted steal of second base in each of the last two games of the series. He did commit an error in the series. Garcia on Saturday in the top of the third committed a fielding error on a leadoff grounder by Mark Mathias as the ball went off Garcia's glove as he was coming in on the ball. But Luis Garcia offensively has been really good since the Nats on June 1st recalled him from AAA Rochester, 45 plate appearances, batting average of 372, on base percentage of 378, slugging percentage of 488. Uh, also, we have had a change with the lineup of Davey Martinez. Uh, Lane Thomas is back to being the every game leadoff batter, or at the very least, he was the Nats' number one batter in all three games in this series. And to me, this is a good thing. Uh, Thomas is having an excellent June. He did a really good job as the Nats' number one batter down the stretch of last season, and he was pretty good in this series as the Nats' number one batter in all three games. He was the Nats' starting left fielder in games one and two, was the Nats' starting center fielder in game three. Thomas on Friday night, three for five with three singles. Thomas on Saturday, 0 for two with two walks, including a great walk in that Nats' four-run fifth, a leadoff nine-pitch walk despite having been down in the count at one point, 0-2, and then soon after that, came the Nats three consecutive home runs. And then Thomas on Sunday afternoon, one for five with two strikeouts. Uh, Thomas in the bottom of the third had a leadoff full count single 
up the middle. Uh, Cesar Hernandez had a good series. He was an ad starting second baseman and number two batter in all three games. He went six for 14 with six singles. Uh, the Nats starting pitching in winning two or three games against the Brewers at Nationals Park over the weekend was so-so. Uh, Eric Fetty in game one had your typical Eric Fetty start. Uh, Fetty in the 11-5 win on Friday night, three runs in five and two-thirds innings. That is your typical Eric Fetty final line right there. Three runs in five and two-thirds innings. He gave up four hits, a homer, and three singles. He issued three walks into wild pitch. He recorded four strikeouts. He over his five and two-thirds innings threw 98 pitches, 55 strikes versus 43 balls. The two big problems for Eric Fetty are he puts a lot of guys on base and he isn't pitch efficient. And we saw both of these things pop up on Friday night. He gave up a bomb to Jace Peterson. Fetty in a two-run Brewers second gave up a one-out two-run homer to Jace Peterson on a blast to right field for a 2-1 Brewers lead. The homer went a projected 429 feet per stat cast. Uh, Eric Fetty this season now, 12 starts, ERA of 487, whip of 153. Like I said, he puts a lot of guys on base, and sometimes he ends up pitching well despite putting a lot of guys on base, but it's hard to consistently pitch well when you are almost always putting a lot of guys on base. Uh, Speaking of putting guys on base, uh, Patrick Corbin, uh, he in game two started off poorly, then was good, uh, but then ended poorly. Uh, So Corbin in the 8-6 win on Saturday, four runs in six innings. He gave up seven hits, two homers, two doubles, and three singles. He issued two walks. He recorded two strikeouts. He threw 103 pitches, 63 strikes versus 40 balls. Corbin in the top of the first, a lot of run. He gave up a leadoff homer to Kristen Yelich to center field. The homer went a projected 422 feet per stat cast. So right away, you're down one nothing with Patrick Corbin pitching. But he then tossed scoreless second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth innings. Patrick Corbin threw six innings on Saturday, had allowed just one run. You were loving what you were seeing from Patrick Corbin. But then came the top of the seventh. Uh, Corbin in the top of the seventh on Saturday allowed three runs and got no outs. Uh, His outing completely fell apart. Uh, Corbin gave up a first pitch leadoff double to Victor Caratini off the center field warning track. Corbin gave up an RBI double to Lorenzo Cain to the left field corner to cut the Nats lead to 8-2. Corbin gave up a two-run homer to Mark Mathias to left field to cut the Nats lead to 8-4. Corbin gave up a single to Christian Yelich to right center field to beat the shift on a 1-2 pitch, and then was pulled from the game. The Nats in this game were up at 1.81, ended up winning 8-6. The game became too close for comfort. What Corbin did in the top of the seventh had a good bit to do with that. You really would have loved to have seen Corbin, you know, take that 8-1 lead and run with it, you know, work quickly, throw strikes throw, if not a complete game, then close to a complete game. But that didn't end up happening. I mean, this is just where we're at right now with Patrick Corbin. He now this season over 13 starts has an ERA of 665 and a whip of 173. I mean, those numbers are brutal. And then Davey Martinez on Sunday afternoon went with what is called a tandem start, uh, where you essentially start a reliever or start a starting pitcher who is not expected to last for long. And then you know before the game who you're going to after that. And the idea is for that second guy to pitch a few innings. So, you know, you have two pitchers combining for hopefully what you would get from a normal starting pitcher. Well, the tandem for the Nats in game three of the series was Paolo Espino and Evan Lee. Uh, Paolo was good. Evan was sort of meh. Although, you know, it's not like he was that bad. But the overall output from these two guys ended up being three runs in six innings, which technically is a quality start. Now, I've never loved that because three runs in six innings translates to a 450 ERA, but 
these guys certainly put you in a position to win, especially Paolo Espino. Paolo on Sunday afternoon as the starter, one run in three and two-thirds innings. I uh, gave up four hits, two doubles, and two singles. He had two strikeouts versus no walks. I uh, threw 53 pitches, 34 strikes versus 19 balls. Paolo Espino now this season has an ERA of 208. He's been really good for the Nats. Uh, he gave up a run in the top of the third on two doubles, gave up a one-out double to Tyrone Taylor to center field on a ball that bounced past center fielder Lane Thomas, who was unable to make a sliding forward catch. That was not a great defensive moment for Thomas. And then Paolo gave up a two-out RBI double to Willie Adamas to left field for a one nothing Brewers lead. And then Evan Lee came into the game after Paolo pitched his three and two-thirds innings. Lee allowed two runs in two and a third innings. Uh, he did get smoked by a line drive, but he is said to be okay. But uh, Lee, in the top of the fifth, allowed two runs on a two-out single by Kristen Yelich up the middle, followed by a two-out two-run homer by Willie Adamas to left center field for a 3 nothing Brewers lead, despite Adamas having been down in the count at one point. Oh, two. Uh, the Nats' bullpen in this series was mixed. Probably the most notable performance was that of Tanner Rainey on Saturday. Uh, Rainey, in the top of the ninth of the 8-6 win on Saturday, allowed two runs. Like I said, this game became too close for comfort, and Rainey was a part of this. He issued a one-out, five-pitch walk of Andrew McCutcheon and gave up a two-out, two-run homer to Luis Arias to left center field to cut the Nats' lead to 8-6. Uh, Rainey did have two strikeouts, and the Nats did win the game, but uh, Rainey has been shaky recently. He's not looked great over his last few outings. Uh, Kyle Finnegan was good on Saturday. He tossed one and a third scoreless innings. And Steve Ciszek in the 11-5 win on Friday night was really good. One and a third scoreless innings with three strikeouts. Uh, also for the Nats over the weekend, each of their top two pitching prospects started a game for AAA Rochester. Uh, talking about Cade Cavalli and Cole Henry, although uh, neither guy did well uh, in his outing. Uh, Cavalli struggled for the first time in four starts. Uh, Cavalli on Friday night in a 6-4 loss for the AAA Rochester Red Wings at the St. Paul Saints allowed four runs in five innings. Uh, he gave up six hits, two homers, two doubles, and two singles. He issued four walks. He did record five strikeouts, but he over his five innings through 94 pitches. Uh, Cavalli had been great over his three previous starts. He over his three previous starts had allowed just two runs in 19 innings with 20 strikeouts, uh, this off having really struggled over his first seven starts. Uh, Cavalli, over his first seven starts for Rochester this season, had an ERA of 762. Cavalli has seemed to be close to being called up to the majors, but you really would like to see a sustained run of excellence from Cavalli for Rochester before calling him up to the majors. Because once Cavalli is called up to the majors, you want him to stay in the majors, right? You don't want him toggling between the majors in AAA. I mean, this guy is the number one pitching prospect for the Nats. MLB Pipeline ranks Cade Cavalli as the number 47 prospect in baseball. Nats took Cavalli with the number 22 pick in the 2020 MLB draft out of the University of Oklahoma. And then, like Cavalli, Cole Henry struggled over the weekend. Uh, Henry on Saturday night in an 11-7 loss for the AAA Rochester Red Wings at the St. Paul Saints. Four runs in three innings. He gave up six hits, a homer, and five singles. He issued one walk. He recorded three strikeouts. Uh, this was Henry's second start for Rochester. He was good in the first start. Henry on June 5th in an 11-2 home win over the Buffalo Bisons. Five scoreless innings. He had three strikeouts versus three hits and a walk. 57 pitches, 36 strikes versus 21 balls. Henry just got to AAA. You would think that he's going to be here for at least, I don't know, a month, maybe two. But I think the goal here for the Nats is to have both Cade Cavalli and Cole Henry pitching at the major league level 
by the end of this season. Uh, the Nats on June 2nd promoted Henry from AA Harrisburg to AAA Rochester. He was excellent for AA Harrisburg this season. Seven starts, 23 and two-thirds innings, ERA of 0.76, whip of 0.59, strikeouts per nine innings of 10.2. The Nats took Henry in the second round of the 2020 MLB draft out of LSU. MLB Pipeline ranks him as the Nats' number three prospect and number two pitching prospect. So this is a big deal. Cole Henry, Cade Cavalli, how these guys are doing and when they end up being called up to the majors. Next up for the Nats, a three-game series against the surging Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. The Braves have won 11 consecutive games. Yeah, the Nats are not exactly catching the Braves at a perfect time, although maybe the Nats can be the team that ends the Braves' winning streak. Game one, Monday night at 7.05, Josiah Gray will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Well, what was looking like a potentially disastrous series for the Orioles ended up being a pretty good series. Uh, The O's ended up splitting a four-game series at the lowly Kansas City Royals, uh, who now have the second-worst record in the American League at 20-39 and and have the worst run differential in the AL at minus 88. And yet the O's lost the first two games of the series. Thursday night, a 7-5 loss. Friday night, an 8-1 loss. But then... Saturday, a 6-4 win, and Sunday afternoon, a 10-7 win as the O's, Joe Angel, were back in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, sir, Joe, the win column. Uh, The O's this season now are 26-35. and Big day for the Orioles offensively. On Sunday afternoon, 10 runs, 15 hits, three homers, two triples, and by the same guy, uh, two doubles and eight singles, uh, six walks. The O's went five for 18 with runners in scoring position. The Orioles player who hit the two triples on Sunday afternoon was Richie Martin, who was the number nine batter. Go figure. Yeah, Richie Martin on Sunday afternoon as the Orioles starting shortstop and number nine batter, three for five with a two-run triple, another triple, and a single. He had some game. Uh, great to see Cedric Mullins do well on Sunday afternoon. He is the Orioles starting center fielder and number one batter, four for six, with two RBI singles and two other singles. Uh, Mullins is having a very good June. He this month has an on-base percentage of 372 and a slugging percentage of 513. So hopefully, finally, Cedric Mullins is getting going this season. His OPS for the season now is up to 697. Uh, Austin Hayes was good on Sunday afternoon. He is the Orioles starting right fielder and number four batter. Went three for five with a double, an RBI single, another single, and an RBI force out. Uh, Hayes has been very good this season. His OPS for the season is at 821. Anthony Santander on Sunday afternoon homered for a second time in three games. Uh, He is the Orioles starting left fielder and number three batter, two for six, with a solo homer and an RBI single. Santander on Friday night as the Orioles starting left fielder and number three batter, two for four with a solo homer and a single. Uh, Santander leads the O's with 11 home runs this season. Ryan Mountcastle on Sunday afternoon as the Orioles starting DH and number six batter, two for five with a solo homer and a double. Just a lot to like from the Orioles lineup on Sunday afternoon. And really over the last two games of the series, you know who is good for the O's in the win on Saturday? Adley Rutschman. Yeah, remember him? The Phenom, the Wunderkind 
Uh, he on Saturday as the Orioles starting DH and number five batter, three for four with two doubles and a single. This was his first multi-hit game since May 30th. Uh, look, he has really struggled offensively since being called up to the majors. Adley Rutschman entered the game on Saturday with an OPS plus of just 32 over 65 major league plate appearances this season. OPS plus is OPS that's adjusted for your league and home ballpark. 100 is average. Anything below 100 is below average. Rutschman's OPS plus through games on Friday was a mere 32, but then he had the three hits, including two doubles on Saturday. Uh, Rutschman on Friday night as the Orioles starting catcher and number seven batter, one for three with a double. Uh, by the way, the O's on Saturday afternoon placed infielder Ramona Rios on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to June 10th with a left oblique strain. A bad series for Orioles starting pitching until the final two games of the series. Uh, Jordan Lyles in game one continued to struggle. Uh, he in the 7-5 loss at the Royals on Thursday night, six runs in five innings. Uh, Bruce Zimmerman in game two struggled for a fifth consecutive start. Zimmerman in the 8-1 loss at the Royals on Friday night, seven runs in four and two-thirds innings. He gave up a jaw-dropping 10 hits, two homers, a triple, four doubles, and three singles. He did issue no walks, but he recorded just two strikeouts. Uh, it is a real shame what has happened to Bruce Zimmerman's season. Bruce Zimmerman, over his first seven starts of the season, had an ERA of 272, but he now has been really bad over his last five starts. Uh, Zimmerman in a 9-6 win over the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on May 19th, five runs in five innings. Zimmerman in a 7-6, 11-inning loss at the Yankees on May 24th. Four runs in six into third innings. The four runs came on four solo homers. Zimmerman in a 12-2 loss at the Boston Red Sox on May 29th. Six runs in four innings. He gave up five home runs, tying an Orioles franchise record for the most home runs given up by a pitcher in a regular season game. Zimmerman in a 6-3 loss to the Cleveland Guardians at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on June 3rd. Five runs. In five and two-thirds innings, he gave up 10 hits in that game. And Zimmerman, like I said, in this game on Friday night at the Royals, gave up 10 hits. He is getting smacked around, start in and start out. Now, Tyler Wells in game three of this series was solid. Wells in the 6-4 win at the Royals on Saturday, three runs in six innings. He gave up five hits, a triple, a double, and three singles. Issued two walks, had four strikeouts, threw a lot of strikes, 84 pitches, 60 strikes, versus 24 balls. For the most part, I like what I've seen from Tyler Wells as he has made the transition from reliever to starter this season. Tyler Wells now 12 starts this season, ERA of 386, whip of 108. Uh, those numbers are pretty good. And then Dean Kramer in game four was solid. Uh, Kramer in the 10-7 win at the Royals on Sunday afternoon, two runs, one earned in five innings. Uh, gave up just four hits, all of which were singles. He issued two walks. He had Two strikeouts. He threw 80 pitches, 50 strikes versus 30 balls. O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Sunday afternoon on Dean Kramer. Really impressed with Dean. Um, only two walks, only two strikeouts, but a ton of but a ton of strikes. Um, after probably the second or third inning, started to started to work ahead in the count. Um, but again, mid-90s fastball, he had, some, he had a good changeup today, I thought. thought he used the cutter at appropriate times and had some nice bite to it. Um, and and it did, had trouble with the curveball early. Uh, 
but I thought he really competed well and you know on a hot hot humid day and and uh, pitched into the sixth inning for us. Yeah, you know, it's funny. The Nationals on Sunday afternoon faced Jason Alexander as the Milwaukee Brewers starting pitcher, and the Orioles on Sunday afternoon started a pitcher named Kramer. So we had a Seinfeld theme on Sunday afternoon for our two area teams. Uh, Dean Kramer, so the O's on June 5th reinstated Kramer from the 10-day injured list. He had been on that since April 11th, retroactive to April 8th with a left oblique strain. Uh, Kramer in the Orioles' 3-2 loss to the Guardians at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Now two Sunday afternoons ago, June 5th, three runs in four and a third innings. So he now has made two starts since coming off the 10-day IL. This season is Kramer's age 26 season. The O's got him from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the trade package for third baseman slash shortstop Manny Machado back in July 2018. Kramer really struggled at the major league level last season. Hopefully, uh, he's better this season. It would be hard to be much worse. Uh, Dean Kramer last season at the major league level, 13 starts, 53 and two-thirds innings, ERA of 7.55. Uh, also for the O's over the weekend, some good news in the minors. Outfielder Heston Kerstad finally has made his professional debut. The O's took Heston Kerstad with the number two pick in the 2020 MLB draft out of the University of Arkansas. He, in August 2020, was diagnosed with myocarditis. He, in March 2022, suffered a severe left hamstring strain, but he, on Friday night, made his professional debut. He is playing for the Loe Delmarva Shorebirds. Uh, This season is Kerstad's age 23 season. MLB Pipeline ranks Kerstad as the Orioles' number nine prospect. So the O's, who already have a number of promising young players, and don't forget, have the number one pick in the 2022 MLB draft, which will begin on July 17th, now finally have Heston Kerstad beginning his professional career. Next up for the O's, a four-game series at the Toronto Blue Jays. Game one, Monday night at 7.07. Kyle Bradish will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 335, will feature a very special guest to talk commanders, Howard Gutman, the former United States ambassador to Belgium. He was U.S. ambassador to Belgium from August 2009 to July 2013. He is a lawyer. He went to Harvard Law School off going to Columbia University for his undergraduate work. He is an actor. He is a big fan of the Commanders, and he is a loyal listener of this podcast. And so we will lean on the expertise of Howard Gutman to discuss the Jack Del Rio situation, uh, Dan Snyder and Congress, and plenty more. This should be fun. A big wig in Washington, D.C. politics, Howard Gutman will be on Tuesday's installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Also on Tuesday's show, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. And that's on Monday night at 7.05. We'll get a three-game series against the surging Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. The Braves have won 11 consecutive games. The O's on Monday night at 7.07. We'll get a four-game series at the Toronto Blue Jays. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. 
in my, in my opinion, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Some guys decide to share it on Twitter. Some guys don't. It doesn't make one person better than the other. And at the end of the day, you can have a difference in opinion and still respect one another. I mean, I feel like that's what our country is about. That's what our team's about. So, I mean, me personally, I don't care about his opinion. His opinion, as long as he shows up every day and he works hard, I mean, that's what I want for my defensive coordinator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.